Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. I'm reading from chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I will read verses 6 through 9. And I'd invite you to follow with me as we read this portion of Scripture. And it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. That won't get you very many votes, you know, for popularity when you go to saying that to the king. So Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? What else can he have? He's, he's got everything now. And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. On the traditional list, envy is listed as one of the seven deadly sins. And who is there among us today who would deny that Envy can be evil and ugly and destructive. We're all acquainted with that enemy that has kind of moved in unwantedly into the back room of our mind. It just kind of hangs around there. And Will Manson's play, The Deadly Game, Trap and Gustave are talking. Trap says, I've been around and everybody is basically the same. And Gustave says, are you saying that the common humanity of man is more dynamic and impressive than individual differences? He said, that's exactly what I mean. I'm talking about, he said, the selling game. He said, you can convince anybody to buy anything if you convince them of three things. Number one, that they can buy it from you cheaper than they can get it from anybody else. Number two, that anybody who is anybody already has what you have, what you've got to sell. And he said the third is probably the most important. If you can convince them that when their friends see that they have what you've got to sell, they're going to burn with envy. Envy does such strange things. It's really a paradox. It causes us to be happy when others fail, and it causes us to be unhappy when others succeed. You know the feeling, don't you? If there's anybody here this morning who is honest, he would have to admit that he has felt that enemy within called envy. He has looked upon what others have and has secretly wished they did not have them. And he has seen others fail and topple, and he has secretly rejoiced. 
Envy is most likely to appear where we are competitors, either overtly or covertly, and where the room at the top is limited. For example, an attorney is probably not going to be too envious if you congratulate a surgeon or compliment a surgeon. You can say, you know, I believe that Mr. X is the best surgeon in town and that attorney is not going to feel any envy at all. In fact, he's probably going to look upon his reputation with happiness and goodwill. But it might be a different thing if you said to that attorney, you know, I believe Mr. Y might be the best lawyer in our city. It's in our own field of competition. It's where we are competitors and where the room at the top is limited that envy appears in full strength. It wasn't David's ability with the harp that caused Saul to burn with envy. As a matter of fact, when David was just the court troubadour, Saul thought he was just the finest young man in the county. But it was when David began to excel in Saul's own field of renown, it was when the people began to chant, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands, that Saul began to burn with envy. And if I had taken this text one paragraph further, you would see that when this little needling song was over, Saul so consumed by his envy, he picked up a spear and hurled it at David. And when he missed him, he picked it up and hurled it again and missed him again. Now we've come a long way from there. Usually we don't throw spears at one another. But while the spears may be confined to the museums, the malice and the ill will that accompanies envy is not confined there. We get so unsettled by someone else's success that we secretly long for them to fail. If we can't succeed, we don't want anybody else to. I heard about the Baptist preacher making his annual report. It was a sad story. Attendance was down, baptisms were down, uh, money was, receipts were down, they needed to do some work on the church building and they didn't have the money to do it. And he finished this dismal report by this statement, you know about the only positive thing I can say is that the Methodists are not doing any better. The Apostle Paul said to the Romans, because we're Christians, we should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But envy twists that around, and whatever our faces may show and our voices may say, down deep inside, most of us, some of the time, wish or weep with those who rejoice and rejoice when they weep. Now, I'm not here to tell you this morning that you'll ever get out of the problem, ever de deal finally with the problem of envy. He's always going to be there and the battle's going to rage now on this front and then on that one. But what I'm about this morning in this place, and I think it's relevant today, is to try to find something in our Christian faith that will enable us to be victorious over this envy, this enemy within. Is there anything? One. There is the Christian insistence that a man is to be measured on the scale of his own abilities and opportunities and not on the scale of another's abilities and opportunities. And Jesus told the parable of the man of the of the master who was leaving and he gave one man 10 talents and another 5 and another 1. 
And most of the time when you read the New Testament, you, you expect to find some sympathy for the underdog, the, you know, the, the one talented man. But you don't find that when you read the parable of the talents. When the master came back, it was the one talented man who received his judgment. And the judgment and condemnation, as you recall, was because he failed to do justice with his own gift. He failed to do justice with the talent he had. I play a little golf, not much but some. And I'm less than mediocre as a golfer. Um, I, I think that, that par out here on the golf course is 72, but I don't play against par. I play against my own par. My par is 90. I mean, with my talent and my uh, opportunity to play the game with the limited time I have to play it, you know, if I break 90, I'm doing great. That's my par. And if I break 90, I'll go home and celebrate, you know, with my wife. Now, some of you great golfers this morning, now that, that's not a very good score. And if you shot 90, you'd probably throw your golf bag clubs away. But you play against your par and I'll play against mine, you see. And I think that there is some Christian sanction for applying that principle across the board. Now I hear what you're saying in your mind. Now that leaves me cold because that suggests that you're never to strive for excellence and you're never to reach for greatness. You're never to hit your wagon to a star. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, however, that you are free to be yourself as God made you. You're even free to fail. Did you know that? You're free to accept your limitations and feel it's okay. You're free to like yourself. You're free to be you. And that's a good word on this day. Have you ever watched people as they live their lives trying to be somebody else? I mean, watch little children and they dress up in mama's dress and, and, and long, you know, long dress and high heel shoes just wishing they could be like somebody else. And little boys put superstars' names on their T-shirts. You ever notice that? And young people wish they had her looks and his personality and opportunity and adults just covet what somebody else has, his wealth and status and position. We live our lives wishing we could be somebody else, play by somebody else's par. You're free to be yourself. That salty old woman in um, Beverly Hillbillies uh, says something about self-acceptance. She said, most folks are made to be like they are and everybody is a perfect specimen of the kind he is. That's profound. So if you're looking for salt, you're going to be disappointed if you get sugar, but salt is fine if you're thinking of salt. I'd be terrible if you expect Marilyn Monroe, but I'm a perfect example of me. Now take, you know, what you see is what you get. You're free to accept yourself. You're free to believe that God loves you just like you are. You know, Abraham and Sarah, they're famous. You know who Hagar was? She was Sarah's uh, helper. She was uh, the handmaiden of Abraham and Sarah. And somehow, in an unwise decision, Sarah said to, to Hagar, why don't you just go into Abraham? She was barren. Why don't, barren, why don't you go into Abraham and, so he can have some children? When that happened, Sarah envied Hagar, 
and she ran her out of town. And out there in the desert, I was just reading this the other day, Hagar was out there in the desert abused and misused and put out and forgotten. And God came to her and said, Hagar. And I looked at that and I said, isn't that amazing? God knows her name. I mean, she's not Abraham's bond maiden. She's not even his mistress. She's Hagar that God loves, a special and unique person. You are made by God to be as you are. And the first step toward a healthy life, a healthy spiritual life as a matter of fact, and the first step toward the conquering of this envy that burns in most of us is to rejoice because nobody else has my fingerprints or my par. Secondly, the second way to conquer this enemy within is to believe that the only failure we have to fear, really, is the failure to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I want you to hang here. I want to tell you something important. The failure, the only failure we have to fear is the failure to be a disciple of Christ. Now, note, I'm not saying that success and distinction in your field, your vocation, is not significant. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that's not the most important thing. I am saying that you, if you are a failure as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how successful you are in any other realm in the economy of God, you're a failure. And I think that has relevance with regard to envy because the thing that generates envy and the self-disparagement that always accompanies it is the feeling that the big doors are closed to us. I mean the big important things are shut off to us. And because of our inadequacies, we've just kind of been disqualified from the big race. That's not true. A young man came into my office. I mean, he was the study of despondency. He sat down and told me this story. He said he had a, he had a speech impediment. He said when he was in junior high, one day the teacher in the class made fun of his speech. He never got over that. He said, I couldn't get away from that. He said, I felt so terrible about myself. And he said, I quit high school, and, and he just kind of sponged off his parents. And he was about 30 at the time, and never hadn't gotten a job or anything. And he was in to try to find out who he's supposed to envy next, you know. And I, I listened to him, and I said, uh, you know, he said, my, all my buddies have gotten married, and they have beautiful children, good jobs. And he said, I mean, life has passed me by. I said, hey, fell, let me tell you something. The big door, the biggest door of life is still open to you. I mean, the biggest race is still being run. It's, the big door is this. You can be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can have a walk with God and know Him on a first-name basis, and there's nothing any bigger than that. I mean, why should I envy a person who sits with the governor when I have the, man who, when I have the person who made the governor as my father? You see that? Why should I envy a man who has a million dollars when my father owns everything, even the man who has a million dollars? When I started out preaching, you know, I think our society has so programmed us on success, you know, and I was worshiping it to God of success. 
You know, our ads, our magazine ads say, you know, take this new course and you can get a new advancement. And the clothing people say, you know, a part of being successful is looking successful. And the carpet folks tell us about titles on the doors and tiles on the floors and all those kinds of things. And I thought, man, you've got to be successful. And so I, I got after it, you know. And the way you can become successful as a pastor is to put the numbers there, you see. And I just pace up and down. Literally true. My wife knows this. I just pace up and down there at the secretary's desk on Sunday morning, just die a thousand times if five people less were there on Sunday morning than were there the Sunday before. You know, and everything I wrote, I talked about how many folks we had in Sunday school. And I wanted to be like Billy Graham. I preached his sermons. You know, I thought the way to be like him was preach his sermons. So I memorized them. I even got his, 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 his dialect. I even sounded like him. And I was miserable. And one day God just kind of worked me over. He said, Gerald, you're never going to be like Billy Graham. In fact, you're probably going to step in a pulpit many times where people have been greater than you lots of times. You're probably never going to be that great. But you can be a disciple of mine. And you can walk with me and talk with me and fellowship with me. And you can have a dynamic relationship with me. And that's open to every one of us. And that's the biggest door there is to open. Let me tell you something. You may, not be, you may be successful in your realm of life, but if you're not walking with God, you've missed it all. Now, I must have lost you somewhere. I didn't get a single nod, you see there. The family started out to the western part of the United States. They were headed for the Grand Canyon. They were all excited. Diaries were handed out to each member of the family so they could write their impression of that beautiful place. They pulled up at the Grand Canyon, got out to one of those marvelous lookout places of the Grand Canyon, walked over to the edge of it in the rail. They were standing there just, just, just amazed in awe of God's magnificent creation. And the little boy that was with the group walked over to the edge of the lookout and spit. I mean, he just... You know, I don't know how to say it. He just leaned over and spit. After a proper reprimand, they got in their car and went on. That night in the motel, the father opened the little boy's diary to see his entry. It said, today I spit two miles. <laughs> you, know, you know, some of us just miss the whole point, you know. I mean, we miss the whole thing. And so we go after these races, we knock on these doors that are really big doors, but they're not the biggest door. And we enter these races and we run ourselves down trying to win. And the big race we never enter. And it's open to every one of us. How can I defeat envy? Number three, by attaching a sacredness to life itself, to the sheer state of being alive, attaching sacredness to that. Now listen, as I read the Bible, I've, I find that, that God is constantly trying to get people to add a value to the sheer quality of being alive that they never put there. I mean, most of us, you know, we say, well, life is worth living if, and we, you know, we add all these uh, conditions. Life is worth living if this relationship works out. Life is worth living if this marriage succeeds. Life is worth living 
if I get this new job or promotion. Life is worth living if I have a new house to live in, a nice car. We put all these conditions on it. Life is worth living, say the young people, if I don't have pimples, you know, that kind of thing. And I think God gets tired of that, don't you? I, I, somehow I see God, you know, picking up a big eraser somewhere and just kind of wiping the slate clean. And on the big cosmic blackboard, I see Him write this sentence, Life is worth living, period. And I kind of hear Him saying this morning to some of us, When are you going to stop complaining about life? When are you going to stop feeling sorry for yourself? When are you going to stop envying other people and just be grateful that you have a life to live? And to capture the wonder and the majesty and the sheer blessedness of the sheer quality of aliveness, you see. Picture, if you will, a young widow, a young woman, a young married woman, not a widow, whose husband is in combat in Vietnam. She's watching reports every day. She gets a letter from him every day. Oh, they're so in love, and she's, she misses him so desperately, and he's so far away. And every day she gets this letter from him, and one day the letters stop coming. She watches the news. She finds out that his battalion is in the severe part of the fighting, and she hears one day just by happened to catch it on the news that his plane went down, or plane went down in that area, and he's a pilot. And she's just desperately frightened. No word comes, no word comes. She just knows the worst has happened. One day she looks out the window, happens to pass the picture window, and sees an army official coming, uh, an, an Air Force official coming up the walk, and he has another man with him, and they are carrying a little letter. And her heart's racing at a thousand beats a minute. And as they step inside the door, they're so solemn and they say, we have bad news for you. Your husband has been taken prisoner of war. And she bursts out and sobs, not of sorrow, but of relief and of sheer joy. And this is what she can say, only what she can say. He's alive, thank God, he's alive. For there's nothing better than that. Or imagine what it's like when you hear for the first time you have a terminal illness. Imagine that. One man writes about it and says, now that death is imminent, life has changed. I don't have time for complaining. I don't have time for shyness. I don't have time for bitterness. Every action is significant because I might be remembered by that action. And the trivial things, the dull duties, the mechanical responsibilities are wonderfully precious to me for I love them. What he's saying is, what, what that person is saying is this, now that I understand what it means to be alive, everything is precious. Because you see, when you, when you grasp something of the sacredness of life, everything is different as you look at it even what other people have. How can I conquer envy, finally? By, re by recognizing, as the Bible suggests, that we, are, that we are a part of the basic human family on earth. 
you know, about six weeks ago, I decided I would just study the book of First, First Samuel, read that book in Second Samuel. And, and I just, I was captured by the thing, by the idea that's in here, by the, by, the, by, the, by the discovery I made that David just wanted so badly to have a good relationship with Saul. He just, he wanted that so badly. He looked on him as a brother, as a father figure, I think, perhaps. You see, this, the New Testament keeps reminding us that, hey, this person you envy is your brother. And so it just leaps out of the book of 1 Corinthians as Paul deals with spiritual gifts. Hey, hey, this man that you despise, that you wish he didn't have what he has, and you wish you had what he had, he's your brother. I mean, you're part of the, the, the common family of humanity, and you're part of the family of God. The man you envy belongs to your family. I like Carl Baker's poem. I quote it all the time. It's called Pronouns. And the Lord said, say we. But I shook my head and held my hand stubbornly behind my back and said, I. The Lord said, say we. I looked at them all wretched and gone awry, myself and those grimy shapes. Distastefully I turned my head persisting, they. The Lord said, say we. And I'm much richer by a horde of years and tears and so I looked into their eyes and found that word that bent my neck and bowed my head. And like a shamed schoolboy, I said, We, Lord. I was watching the news report last night, and here it was in broad open daylight. A sibling class went right along with his sermon. I said, Thank you, Lord. My wife said, that looks kind of dumb. I said, thank you, Lord. Didn't say that to my wife, but here was his sibling class down there in Dallas. And the whole point of the sibling class was that, that they, they get these little children, you know, some of them weren't so little, and prepare them for the birth of a sister or a brother. And, and they take them through the class just like the parents who are having the kids, you know, having the, having the baby. And it showed them, they went to the hospital, they took them right into the, into the maternity room. They went into the delivery room and they showed those babies right after birth, you know, and those little kids, you know, were standing there, you know, their eyes would just look like two fried eggs, man, they just couldn't believe that. And they let, they, they let them touch the babies and they, and they did all this. And after it was over in the sibling class, they had to learn, they, they practiced putting on diapers on a, on a doll. It was getting them ready for these because you see, sometimes when a, when a little one comes in to where he's got older brothers and sisters, they might resent him while he's threatening their turf. He's moving in on them. And, and, and if he comes, the father and mother might shift their affection from, from the older brother and sister over to the baby. And so they had to teach them that these new babies were not just mamas and daddies. They were brothers and sisters too. I mean, that's what we had to teach Todd and Cindy when Michelle came along, not in a sibling class. But we had to convince them, had to tell them. They didn't have to be convinced, but we just had to tell them, hey, Michelle is not just ours. She's yours, too. We're in this thing together, folks. We need each other. 
I mean, we depend on each other. You're my brother. You're my sister. We belong to the family of God, and that's a beautiful thing. Let's get ready to believe that God has brought us together in a uniqueness and and an intertwining that makes this thing dynamically beautiful. And I'm not going to envy you. You're my brother. And that means that your successes become my successes because you're part of my family. Your failures become my failures because you're a part of my family. So I can rejoice with you when you rejoice. And I can weep with you when you weep. And I wouldn't finish the sermon on envy without pointing out the one who is able to help us accomplish this, and that's Jesus Christ, who though being in the form of God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and became a bondservant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And when Jesus Christ is your Lord and he comes to indwell and to live in your life, he brings in resident a kind of love and acceptance and that enables you to reach out in vulnerability to others and to love them when he's there as Lord residing and presiding, it just enables you to accept yourself. Hey, I must be somebody special because God loved me enough for Jesus to die for me. And you can begin to be free to live your life as God purposed for you to live it. My question this morning is not, are you envious? I already know you are. You're just like me. My question for you this morning is, do you know the one who enables you to be more than conqueror over everything? Do you know Jesus Christ as personal Savior? I want you so badly this morning to do what these young people did at camp that we baptized this morning. I want you to come to say, I want Jesus Christ to live in my life. He had everything and gave it up. That's what I want to be like. I want you this morning to to consider your relationship to yourself and to God, what you're pursuing, what you're really after. I want you to believe this morning that God has such a great plan and purpose for your life. It's worthy of your total commitment. Are you serving Him? Are you in the big race? Are you just a constant negative complainer? My question this morning is, what steps do you need to take to be more than conqueror? And would you take those now? I'll pray that you will, then we'll give our invitation. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you've made us, gifted us, blessed us, you love us, you know us by face and by name. And I'm thankful, Father, that you have such a great plan for each of us. And I pray that we'll not miss the point of life, spend our life envying others, wishing we had something else, but to desire to be in fellowship with you and to walk with you. Now I pray that this moment of invitation will be just as you planned for it to be when you got us up and brought us to church today. 
and that vic victory shall come so that we can rejoice, praise you, and thank you. Bless this moment now and draw, Father, you've been lifted up, Jesus. Now will you draw all men to yourself? You already have been lifted up on the cross. Now will you draw all of us to you? And I pray for those that we've called by name before. Lord, they're here today. Would you draw them now to yourself? Because I ask in Jesus' name, and I pray this for his sake. In a spirit of prayer, would you stand and our choir will lead us. As we sing, we invite you to come. <laughs>